Welcome to the Daily Standard Podcast. It's December 10th, 2018. I'm Charlie Sykes, joined by Jim Swift and Andrew Egger of the Weekly Standard. How are you gentlemen today? So good. How are you, Charlie? Doing fantastic. Good. Well, we're still living living the dream. Okay, I have a question, though. Um, the, the, the President of the United States he had made it very, very clear that he wanted a 36-year-old uh, political operative to be the White House Chief of Staff, Nick Ayers. Um, and apparently, this was all set to go this week. And now we find out that Nick Ayers is like, eh, no, I'd rather spend more time with my family. So give me your sense of what it says that right now the president of the United States is having a hard time filling what at one time was one of the most plum positions in Washington, D.C., well, uh, well, the first thing I got to say, Charlie, is that uh, th- this this news is actually one, uh, the rare story that sort of affects me personally because uh, Nick Ayers' kids happen to be in my wife's kindergarten class, and so she's she like really likes them and is like really bummed that they're now like moving back to Georgia or whatever. Um, so, uh, which which is which I so I actually found out this news sort of like from my wife instead of from like doing my job. Which wait, wait, sort wait, of out. He's moving this to is Georgia. Kind of- yeah, yeah. That's so. Uh, he's, he's, he's quitting leaving. his job. Is the yeah. He will also no longer be Pence's chief of staff. Yeah, they're like moving to be with closer to family or something. That seems like that. really weird. Do you think there might be something behind that? I don't. Yeah, I mean, I guess if you're if you're offered the job of uh, the the president's chief of staff, it's probably not a very good look to decline that but remain the vice president's chief of staff. I would I would, I would imagine I, I would right? do that, but you know, <laughs> not to be conspiratorial here, but well, that seems just, a little weird. That's just your natural contrarian. I, 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 I want to go back to this swampy revelation about the the kindergarten classes because I mean this is the way Washington D.C. works, <laughs> right? I mean, you got guys, you know, chief of staff or the vice president. They they send their kids. To the same kindergarten class as uh, senior writers for the Weekly Standard, yeah, well, so that's they, the they way have, it all they, works. Here, right? I'll, I'll let Andrew break the news here. The interesting thing is, it's not just kids; it's mm. uh, triplets. Yeah, actually, uh, he has tri- triplets in kindergarten, and uh, and uh, they're very good kids. Apparently, I've, I have not met them myself, but uh, you know, my wife vouches for them. So, I was reading the uh, the Daily Two Hundred Two this this morning. You know, talking about uh, why the chief of staff has uh, become such a uh, radioactive job. And again, it's not not rocket science, but you you, you can't manage um, Jared and Ivanka. You can't manage uh, the the president himself. He doesn't really want uh, real discipline. The chances are, uh, I would say, nine out of ten that you will be fired at some point, having been humiliated. Um, There's a very, very good chance that your reputation will be permanently damaged. And then, of course, the reality that you probably have to lawyer up pretty much the moment you come in. Right. Yeah. And the the problem is that, you know, it's it's the most sort of self-contradictory job description in the whole White House. Right. Because the the whole role of a chief of staff is to uh, apply some kind of order, some sort of organizational structure uh, to the thing to, you know, get everybody sort of marching in the same direction and and, and at the same uh, relative pace. uh, and 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 the problem obviously is not just that uh, that this particular White House can't. Uh can't manage that. It's that the president doesn't even want that that to be sort of the the flavor of the White House. And so, you know, from the minute the next guy walks in the door, you know, if, if, if I think that the the general perception now is that if anyone could have sort of made this thing a relatively stable thing, it would have been uh, chief chief of staff Kelly, who's in in there now, who's leaving because I mean, clearly he's you know got the the military role, the discipline, the the respect. And it seemed for a little while as though you know. 
he was managing to run a tight ship. Uh, but but you know what? what you, you can't make your boss, the president, want you uh, to, to to run the White House in a way that he doesn't want to see it run. So it's just, I think I mean who yeah some right. someone someone at, at some You're point you know staff. it's it's uh, the the. Uh, there's an, some economic law that says you know somebody low down enough uh, is going to get the offer who for whom you know all of those negatives that you just said are outweighed by the rise in stature that it, that it would entail. Uh, but uh, but it it might be a little, a little while before how, we see how, that. How can you manage the unmanageable? You know, yeah. if I were yeah, Nick Ayers, I'd ask myself that question. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's is it really that worth it? And I think for a lot of people, as you pointed out at the beginning of this, Charlie, this is like the most sought after position i mean in in government other than being president yourself or being an elected official i mean this is the 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 pinnacle of of yeah. being this being a staffer but it's no i i, I think weird. i saw somebody in the within the washington post said that you know how the white house chief of staff office has gone from being washington dc royalty to being a punchline and so it, it i mean if you had a friend or somebody you you really cared about who came to you and said hey i've been offered this job you know, what, what, what would you advise him? Say, are you nuts? Are you crazy? Why don't you call Brains Pravis and ask him how, uh, how that worked <laughs> right. out for him? Um, but generally, the, the, just the lure of the prestige and the power and then the rationalization that, well, maybe I will make things better. I will be able to protect the country from this or that. We've, we've really passed that, that stage. Um, but it is interesting, hour by hour, the number of people whose names are floated who then float the no way I'm going there. Right. Um, Mick Mulvaney, um, Mark Meadows, who would have been a truly awful choice. Uh, <laughs> um, you know, Chris Christie is sitting out there on the folding chair yes. in the lawn going, I well, am and even, really even, even the more Even the more mercenary concerns, because we, we were sort of talking about the sort of high-minded things, like, the, you know, obviously that's a, that's a very influential role. And if you're a public-minded guy, you know, traditionally that would be a, a, a position of a lot of impact. Uh, but but even the sort of more mercenary considerations, you know, like the 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 rise in stature that that you know the the, the springboard to sort of a platform that those kinds of jobs often offer often uh, offer a person you know w- once they're on their way out. I mean, we we see over and over again why that uh, becomes a drag on people who have served in the Trump administration as well, rather than you know an, an elevation. I mean, the the Rex Tillerson story this week was just um, you know one like sort of the most recent example. But I mean, you 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 leave the administration and you know you you try to go on the talk show circuit or the, the lecture circuit or whatever um and you, you know even the most sort of like mild pushbacks uh against the the president and you know his behavior and or or what or what have you because rex tillerson i mean the stuff he said last week was not very explosive but it's going to get reported on it's going to get you know tossed around and then the president's going to you know cut you off at the knees on twitter so it's like there's 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 really no even sort of professional um incentive at this point for 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 people to you know and and usually you know, you, you want those things to go together right i mean you want uh, you you want people to be uh, really qualified people to want to be in these roles, both for public-minded and for you know their own personal benefit, right? I mean, that's sort of how the thing is supposed to work. This could sound a little vapid or a little you know impersonal, but when it comes to getting fired, I mean, folks in this job aren't going to last years. It's not right. like they're there to get their high three for their pension. Trump's insults and, as Andrew said, cutting you down at the knees. This is something that's going to haunt people for the rest of their lives. And I don't think a lot of people, I mean, it may sound silly. Oh, ha ha ha. The president of the United States called you dumb as a box of rocks or whatever on Twitter. No one want like, I, I don't know many people who are willing to have 
on their record the president of the United States insulting them. Yeah, I mean, Rex, for, Rex Tillerson for well, less Exxon, than two hundred grand right. a year. Yeah, yeah, forever. I mean, and t- talk about Tillerson again, right? I mean, like prior to joining the White House, you know, one of the sort of highest flying sort of private uh, industry CEOs around, you know, like just a, a really sort of straight shooting business guy who, you know, wasn't obviously wasn't a household name, Exxon Mobil, uh, uh, head honcho, but but is a household name now and is a household name f- specifically for, you know, his, just the the sort of being constantly have his face having constantly have his face rubbed in the dirt by Donald Trump you know over and over and over again and that's just who he's going to be for the rest of his life so no, I, exactly. I don't you know you don't envy it okay I want, I want to talk about the, the the latest developments in the Mueller investigation of where we are at though we certainly seem to have uh, are, are reaching some sort of a critical mass and a lot of speculation out there and uh, underlining the word speculation that the report may be issued by the end of the year, which is the next couple of weeks. But so before we do this, I just want to share with if you, if you guys have a little bit of a couple of minutes here, I want to share an email I got. Hit me up. OK, so ready um, from uh, somebody named uh, Madam Phoebe. Uh, my dear friend, how are you doing? I hope is great. I am sorry for our long time communication since our last communication. Finally, I found a gorgeous man that helped me transfer the fund from China country. So it is my pleasure to inform you that the fund has been transferred from the bank through the help of man and married me from China. I am currently in China now with him, but I cannot forget all of your abilities and effects to help me transfer the fund. But you did not meet up because of one reason or the other, and I decided to write a check of $250,000 for you to compensate you and show appreciation in all your abilities to help me, which you could not fulfill. Please try to huh. contact the Reverend blank, blank, blank through this address. And then there's very helpfully a phone number. Um, I kept the check to the Reverend office in Senegal to deliver the fund to you because after the transfer of the fund, the man proposed marriage to me and we are married and living happily together as husband, wife here in China. Please try your possible best to receive the fund from the Reverend. Instruct him on how to deliver it to you. Have a wonderful day. Signed, Phoebe. Best, my friend best priest ever charlie there are a lot of emotional beats <laughs> and more more than more than your typical I, I couldn't tell whether she was mad at you or yeah, a little disappointed yeah i mean it w- was the notion that like maybe you could have been eligible to receive more money than that if you'd been more helpful mm-hmm. sooner or i don't but but i can make it up to her yeah i can make it up to her well just I mean, by this contacting is, the reverend i guess i mean it sounds legit to me what, what about you guys do you think you know Charlie, maybe I, mean, I should you know, answer. I, I, I get these. I get these offers of money and employment at my my email address every day. Yeah, right. Uh, <laughs> but you know, well, none of them are real. So, yeah. <laughs> well, but we'll see. That's that's the the contrast here. Um, but of course, the existence of an email like this raises so many questions, um, <laughs> in, in, including the. So, does this ever work? Are there people out there who would go, huh? Oh yeah, I think I remember somebody named Phoebe. I'm who's going to send me a check for two hundred fifty thousand dollars. <laughs> so here's so here is a, a theory that I've encountered before, which seems to pass the smell test to me. Is that um, the when you're running a scam like this, it, 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 it what what's useful to you, sort of the, the best way to maximize your own profit is to sort of prioritize uh, quality quantity over quality, right? And so the mm-hmm. the idea is that if you if you write uh, a message that is sort of like deliberately dumb um, and just doesn't you know like pretty much any. Uh, critically thinking person would see as a scam right away, um, and then you just send it to a whole bunch of people. What that does for you is it it weeds out 
the like pretty much anyone who would uh, manage to get wise to your scheme. And I so see. the only responses you're going to get are from people who are just sort of credulous and you know easily fooled and and uh, essentially your 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 suckers. So it's kind of a gross. Uh, I mean, it's all gross, obviously, but it's you know you're they're they're, they're preying on the the most uh, credulous members yeah. of our society. Unfortunately, uh, which, you, which, you, which, you are not which one brings, of them. Which brings us to American politics today. Oh well, the if you're gonna, I mean, people you said who it. are who are apparently gullible and um, who who want to be gullible and who will believe absolutely everything. And I do think that this is an underrated phenomenon in American society that that there are apparently large numbers of Americans who you can get to believe or not believe a whole lot of things. I just, I just, I just throw that out there, and there's no attempted segue now to talk yeah. about the president and uh, the Mueller investigation. Um, Weekly Standard, very strong editorial today. What the Cohen memos actually mean? Um, subhead: High-ranking public officials have resigned for less than what do these documents allege. So, Andrew, I know that you have been um, really, you know, immersing yourself in all of these documents coming out, but. The more I'll tell you my reaction, the more I read into the 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 Manafort uh, documents, uh, the Flynn documents, uh, the, the the Cohen documents, the more I'm getting the sense that uh, the Bob Mueller is laying out some extraordinary information on the public record. Um, and uh, that uh, well, you give me you give me your 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 sense here that that we're almost seeing this report being. Uh, submitted in real time, and it's becoming harder and harder not to recognize that the president himself is in significant legal jeopardy and uh, that this is uh, going to be more and more difficult to brush off as a nothing burger or simply as a witch hunt. Right. And 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 crucially, not just Bob Mueller is you know, laying these, mm-hmm. these things out, because one of the most interesting things about these memos last Friday was that, you know, one of them was from Mueller, but one of them, the one about the, the Stormy Daniels payments and the fraud and the uh, potential election uh, tampering crime, uh, those were from the U.S. Attorney's Office of the Southern District of New York, which is run by a Trump appointee. And so just sort of another sort of bizarre wrinkle. Obviously, that sort of makes it a lot tougher for those particular uh, charges to be brushed off as just sort of a partisan witch hunt because, you know, Trump's sunk all this political capital into, you know, smearing Mueller, but not obviously this guy that he appointed to, to run this office. Um, so before I get into that real quick, I, I, I want to that's, that's a hugely important point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so before I get too much into the facts of these uh, of these memos, one thing I, I want to say sort of maybe on behalf of the, the, the more credulous members of society that we, we've just been talking about is that... Um, one of the interesting things here is that it's it's been really hard, right, to to keep track of all of the developments in in the Mueller case. I mean, this is literally one of the things that they've had me doing at the Weekly Standard for for about a year. And you know, despite the fact that it is my full time job to sort of like keep up keep up with these things, it's still sort of staggering from time to time to try to track all the different little developments uh, that have been trickling out here and there in various different papers and things over the course of the last year and a half. Um, and that. Uh, that plays to, to Trump's advantage, right? Because, you know, if, if you're just sort of a regular person with a regular job that doesn't involve sort of keeping your nose buried in politics for hours and hours a day, um, you know, there, there's really two narratives that are presented to you. And one is like incredibly complicated and has all these like, you know, in different moving parts and all these weird bit characters and things. Uh, and the other narrative is just Trump telling you like, this is just a witch hunt. All these people are just Democrats trying to get me. And that's, you know, easier to get your, get your brain around. And, you know, th- you, you don't have to be a moron in order to buy these things that Trump is saying, essentially, just because it's the it's the it's the more palatable uh, narrative. But I do think and this is what our editorial 
uh, pointed out this morning that th- that this is one of the greatest utilities of things like these documents that were filed last Friday because uh, what they sort of have done is sort of tie up all of the uh, available facts about both what we know about Russia so far and what we know about uh, the these Stormy Daniel payments into sort of like one little narrative that you can kind of actually just read and sort of recoil against like, wow, this is some really shady stuff. So to, to get into maybe just uh, the... Uh, which which one do you want to do first? Do you want to do Stormy well, Daniels or, or Russia? Actually, or? actually Andrew, we're, we're at the, the the you're not just another pretty face stage of the podcast here, <laughs> the, the, because th- this point is also important. In, you know, the, the the complexity is in many ways Donald Trump's uh, friend here, and I remember really. Um, how back in the 1990s, the Whitewater investigation was swirled before Monica Lewinsky was swirling around the, the Clintons. And I had to talk about it. You know, I had a radio show at the time. I had to talk about it all the time. But, you know, what became incredibly clear was it was just there were too many moving parts. It was too complicated. And the public just was not going to they, they were they were going to shrug and, and and ignore it. And when it comes to this Russia investigation, I've, I've experienced the same thing. In fact, uh, this morning before we did this, um, I actually downloaded a sort of a cheat sheet from uh, Axios. What, what do we know about the Russia investigation? Because, again, I talk about this all the time. Mm-hmm. And yet it is difficult to keep all of the different elements in your head at the same mm-hmm. time or to boil them down, you know, and explain why this relates to this and what's the significance of this, as you point out. Um, the advantage then goes to the simple person who says no collusion, no collusion, witch hunt. Charlie, last so. time we did this, I uh, I had some poetry, and uh, I am not a very well-read man, and I'm not a man of uh, books or letters. But uh, can I can I get deep with you here for a second? Because when you opened with the hilarious spam email, do you know what it made me think about? Mm. Nope. Ch- Chesterton's fence. Are you familiar with this paradox? Should be. Go ahead. Okay, so it's from G.K. Chesterton's book and from like the 1920s, 1930s called The Thing. And uh, here's the quote. In the matter of reforming things as distinct from deforming them, there is one plain and simple principle, a principle which will probably be called a paradox. There exists in such a case a certain institution or law, let us say for the sake of simplicity, a fence or a gate erected across a road. The modern type of reformer goes up uh, goes gaily up to it and says, "I don't see the use of uh, this. Let us let us clear it away." To which the more intelligent type of reformer will will do well to answer, "If you don't see the use of it, I certainly won't let you clear it away. Go away and think. Then, when you can come back and tell me you do see the use of it, I may allow you to destroy it." Hmm. So that's hmm. Th- that. Those are your your deep thoughts from from Jim Swift here, because. You know, I mean, Megan McArdle had a, a famous piece, I think, in the Washington Post or maybe the Atlantic a number of years ago about, you know, there's just a fence or a gate out in the middle of the road and you just kind of don't see the use of it here. But there are so many moving parts. People don't want to think, why was it ever erected? You know, how did we get here? And so the, the, just so I'm tracking with this analogy, your, your fence is the Mueller investigation. Is that what we're doing? Yeah, in a okay. way. All right. I, okay, mean, I see it. I ju- see it. Just, <laughs> ju- just going back to Charlie's also original point. Do people fall for this? You know, do people fall for these spam emails? And I think the answer, of course, is yes. Otherwise, they wouldn't keep sending them. Well, you, you know, by the way, there's a variation on that Chesterton quote. Uh, you know, JFK, in a, in a notebook in 1945, uh, said, wrote, "Don't ever take a fence down until you know the reason why it was put up." 
Yes. Wow, that guy was and, cribbing and, mercilessly from G.K. Yeah. Chesterton. It's it's really the shame that JFK gets exactly. the credit for that. Yeah, I don't know. No, no. Well, but the, it, Ken- the, the Kennedys were very good at ripping <laughs> off you know, people, you know, George Bernard Shaw and everything. And then everybody goes, you people are so deep. No, that you stole it all. Yeah. And you were, and you were <laughs> handsome. Okay, so let's go back to uh, this, uh, this, this editorial. So, you know, having established that um, – that that yeah, this is is, is a little bit uh, complex, but they we are now starting to get the picture. It, it feels like me, you know, that that you're it's coming into focus. Yeah, it's the, like they're they're very slowly coming into focus, and as you point out, that 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 the document, even for people who are skeptical of the collusion narrative. They're, they are deeply incriminating, aren't they? Andrew? Yeah, and the analogy that I I would maybe use is that it's it's been sort of like uh, the the frog in the in the pot of boiling water because you know most of the things that were in these documents were, were things that had been previously reported, um, especially just over the last couple of weeks about uh, Cohen and the payments made to to, to Stormy Daniels and uh, and the fact that Trump ordered them and was sort of like abreast of that the whole time and lied about it later. But just the 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 fact that it all came out so incrementally made it sort of. It never really felt like you know sort of sort of a giant leap forward, but now just sort of being right. presented with the story. So just to to at long last sort of hit you with the facts of what's presented here. Here's the here's the the Stormy Daniels narrative that the the Southern District of New York uh, prosecutors lay out. They basically say uh, there was these stories that Trump wanted killed. Uh, he worked you know hand in glove with Cohen uh, to to buy these people off. Also sort of hand in glove with the uh, the National Enquirer in the in the case of uh, the the second porn star that was paid off. Um, that that Trump had knowledge of them at the time that Cohen was doing it, you know, at, at Trump's command at the time, um, and that then he was reimbursed for those payments, not uh, as he and Trump claimed as recently as this summer, uh, through a retainer agreement where he was basically just sort of had a slush fund uh, to use at his discretion for, you know, helping Trump out type purposes, but but specifically uh, reimbursed by the Trump organization for these payments and reimbursed in such a way and again at, at with the knowledge of Trump and at the direction of the Trump uh, organization uh, in such a way that the payments were disguised uh, as though they were uh uh, such a retainer thing, even though there was no retainer agreement. So essentially, it's uh, the 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 Trump organization has not been indicted by the Southern uh, District of New York, but they are they, they potential criminal, fraudulent criminal activity by them, by Trump, all sort of laid out there in the document. And then obviously, you know, the the lies uh, go on much further. But then um, the. The second document, the one that uh, Mueller himself filed in the, the same day last Friday, uh, though that was concerned with Cohen's uh, lies to Congress, and that was not so much about uh, the the Stormy Daniels stuff, uh, but that was about um, the quote unquote Moscow project that we've been we've been hearing a lot about, which was this building, uh, this you know potential Trump Tower Moscow uh, that Cohen was working on. Uh, you know, during the 2016 election, as late as June of 2016, after and and and. Uh, the, the problem was that he had previously, you know, lied both to uh, Senate, the, the the Senate investigators, to House investigators, and to the special counsel, saying that this project had actually concluded in January of 2016. It hadn't, uh, and and prosecutors actually say in the document, you know, the, the the reason why Cohen was being untruthful and sort of coordinating this untruthfulness potentially with the White House uh, was specifically to sort of head off the investigations. Let, that let, were me, already... let me actually read the the language yes, from do. the, this document. This is this is the memo filed by the special counsel's office. The defendant admitted he told these lies, which he made publicly and in submissions to Congress in order to, one, minimize links between the Moscow project and individual one, 
And number two, give the false impression that the Moscow project had ended before the Iowa caucus and the first presidential primaries in hopes of limiting the ongoing Russia investigations being conducted by Congress and the SCO, the special counsel's office. And then um, in the editorial, it also quotes specifically what the prosecutor said here. The quote, the defendant's false statements obscured the fact that the Moscow project was a lucrative business opportunity that sought and likely required the assistance of the Russian government. If the project was completed, the company could have received hundreds of millions of dollars from Russian sources in licensing fees and other revenues. The fact that Cohen continued to work on the project and discuss it with individual one well into the campaign was material to the ongoing congressional and SCO investigations, particularly because it occurred at a time of sustained efforts by the Russian government to interfere with the U.S. presidential election. Now, what strikes me about that is how clear and lucid that is and how directly they tie in individual one, the president of the United States to these efforts. Yeah, clearly there's there's no, I mean, even, even the best case scenario for the president is not great in these documents. Um, one thing I will say is that, you know, there, there, there's clearly some leeway there. You know, there's we, we don't know what the special counsel is going to do, uh, you know, how, how they're going to move forward with information they have about uh, President Trump. Um, one thing, though, is 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 pretty plain, which is that we've known for months that, you know, what what a smoking gun would look like for, you know, obstruction of justice uh, in this investigation would be if President Trump had ordered subordinates to lie to investigators. Right. So so and, and this what we, this this, you know, information we have right now from Mueller uh, and from the Southern District of New York gets right up to that line because it says, you know, that 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 these answers were coordinated with with the White House. It doesn't necessarily say with with Trump himself, but that and, but it is, you know, his personal attorney. So that is the the biggest sort of pressure point danger zone thing for Trump going forward, I think, in the next couple of weeks, because if if that is, you know, if, if the special counsel has that information that that Trump, you know, told Cohen uh, to lie to investigators about the Moscow project in order to head off this investigation. That's the ball game. I mean, I mean, and it might, and people correct might me, not admit- correct me if I'm wrong, because that there's a difference between lying during the campaign and lying when you're. The, yeah, uh, yeah. hundred percent, because nobody I mean, no, nobody in their right mind doesn't acknowledge at this point that Trump has lied about all of this over and over and over and over and over again until he's blue in the face. But yeah, what's what specifically would be the problem is if uh, is if uh, Trump told his subordinates to lie to investigators once this investigation had been launched, because obviously ordering a subordinate to commit a felony is itself you know yes. felony obstruction. And as president. Right. Yeah. Right. Well, uh, yeah. Since since the uh, specifically since the investigation was launched in May of 2017. Yeah. I mean, a felony is a felony. Mm -hmm. We know Trump lies all the time. Right. But, you know, it's there is there is sort of, you know, when it comes to high crimes and misdemeanors, a legally distinct. I mean, it it is what it is indeed, whatever the House wants to to make it. Well, yeah. I mean, it's uh, that's what Gerald Ford famously said that I'm not sure that's what the the founders thought. I don't think the founders thought that they, you could remove a president for any reason, but the term high crimes and misdemeanors was left uh, in, intentionally vague. Um, I see that uh, JVL has a piece that just went up on the uh, Weekly Standard uh, site on on what the Democrats are going to do. What if the Democrats have to impeach Trump? And uh, I haven't had a chance to read it, but I'm reading the subhead. Politically, Democrats are better off not pursuing impeachment, but they may not have a choice. I um, I, I think that 
I'm, I'm, I'm getting the sense that that's going to hit it pretty much on the head, that from a political point of view, there are so many reasons for Democrats not to overplay their hand, not to overplay their hand, not to make Donald Trump into a martyr. But but if we continue on the trajectory that we uh, that, that you know you were describing, Andrew, I think the political pressure on them is going to be overwhelming and irresistible. Here's here's the pertinent quote uh, from JBL's piece that I, I think is you know just kind of worth just taking out. I mean, it's a great piece, and you should all, of course, read it. Mm-hmm. What happens if there's real evidence that Trump is guilty of serious crimes? What are Democrats supposed to do then? Suddenly, right. yeah. not impeaching Trump is as risky as impeaching him. Right, because, yeah, the premise of the piece, which is just, I, I think, sort of undisputable at this point, is that clearly Trump has become sort of an anvil for Republicans. You know, that was clear. We got, uh, Republicans got smashed in the in the 2018 midterms. Uh, it's not going to get any better over the next two years. I mean, I, I believe the Democratic strategy is, you know, if Trump is still around in 2020, they'll win in a rout. They'll retake power like we haven't seen in a long time. Um but then obviously, yes, this is so this is the interesting thought experiment that that JVL is 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 playing with is, you know, may, maybe it's in their best interest to let Trump stick around. But maybe maybe things will become so indisputable that they won't they won't have a choice, which, again, uh, I, yeah. like, like you were just saying, you know, talk about you know a single thing that's going to rally sort of Republicans in opposition, because apparently the only thing that we can all agree on now is that Trump is to be protected at all costs. So. Yeah, I noticed that JBL links to uh, Andy McCarthy's piece, uh, Andrew McCarthy, who's former U.S. attorney, who has been, I would say, much more favorable to uh, the Trump administration, much more skeptical about the investigation. Yeah. And uh, and he said over the weekend uh, that uh, that uh, based on this 40 page sentencing memorandum that was filed uh, on on Friday, uh, the president is very likely to be indicted on a charge of violating federal campaign finance laws. Uh, he says uh, it has been uh, obvious for some time that President Trump is the principal subject of the investigation still being conducted by the U.S. Attorney for the Southern District of New York. And of course, um, I'm not a lawyer and I'm not going to play one on this podcast, uh, but uh, the conventional wisdom is that uh, the Justice Department and Mueller are not going to indict a sitting president. But um, that doesn't mean that he might not face this when he leaves office. But uh, Things are moving pretty quickly, aren't they? Yeah, they feel like they're they're really they're really picking up momentum. Yeah, I I thought for a long time that that Andy, Andy McCarthy at National Review is perhaps you know the best uh, guy writing in sort of the, the uh, a Mueller skeptical mode among sort of Republican writers right now because his his basic take all along has been that the uh, the Mueller investigation has been sort of a, a counterintelligence operation that's been being run as though it's a criminal investigation, and so he's got he's got some interesting uh, sort of problems with the regulations surrounding the appointment of special counsel. Councils, which which has been like a long time problem in American politics. I mean, you remember the the uh, the, the Ken Starr investigation revealed a whole lot of problems about the independent council uh, arrangement that we had before, and the new special council arrangement was created in order to try to solve some of those problems. Um, but you know, his, his his basic beef has been that you know for a long time it perhaps was an investigation in search of a crime, and now has found those crimes, and you know who knows about that. Um, but but yes, I do think that. You know the specifically the Southern District of New York's stuff about the campaign finance. Uh, really, you know that it's 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 a whole different line of argument than than sort. Of, I mean, and I think this they think this is what really people don't really realize is that you know we, we have this whole narrative about Trump Russia Trump Russia Trump Russia and you know this this mm. secondary campaign finance uh, all the stuff with uh, with Stormy Daniels that has sort of snuck up on us 
but it's it, it's largely a different thing, you know, being prosecuted by different people for completely different crimes. But the, the the central issue, which is that the president might have, you know, ordered crimes to be committed in order to help himself get elected and then covered them up for a long time. I mean, that's that's clearly still a big problem, even though it's not, you know, sort of the the high dudgeon of the the the, the Putin plant that a lot of people yeah. on the left have been salivating for 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 about a year. Uh, I'm, I'm not on the left, but I, I, I still am wondering what, what that's all about. There's still something about that. Okay, can I just throw <laughs> in one last uh, completely unrelated topic here? Sure. Because it's uh, just kind of still grinding my, my gears. Uh, I had a piece published uh, in The Atlantic last week where I was trying to urge uh, my friend uh, Scott Walker to veto some of the legislation passed by the the uh, lame duck legislature, the you know, it's being characterized as this uh, coup or power grab uh, to diminish the the uh, powers of the incoming governor uh, Tony Evers uh, and well, of the Democratic Char- Attorney Charlie, General. Charlie, did you did you think that he would was more likely to listen to you if if you wrote it in the Atlantic? I don't. It doesn't seem like uh, Scott Walker's <laughs> publication of choice. I don't know, sorry. Well, I don't think <laughs> should have written it for us, Charlie. <laughs> I, I don't know what it would, but. It, you know, it was it was kind of a hail mary pass, and I have to tell you, the more that I've thought about it, and and by the way, I'm I'm not so naive. I, I don't think he's going to veto it. Uh, all the indications are that he's going to sign it. Uh, you know, this is kind of the the nature of politics now. Uh, you know, there's the sort of winner take all, smash mouth politics. But you know, I I'm, I'm making a point that that I wanted to distinguish from that that other people are making. You know, on the left there is you know hysteria on top of hysteria. This is the end of democracy, and that grotesquely overstates the case. And and I, I do understand why conservatives are pushing back on that. So because it is not the end of democracy. On the other hand, I, I my I you know my my main point is in fact because it is not so big that it's not worth it for Scott Walker to expend as much political capital as he has. It's worse than a crime. It's a blunder because it does look petty and vindictive. And self-destructive, and in the end, they just don't get that much for it. I mean, it's just not that big a deal. And if you're Scott Walker, you know the the relevant facts are that he's 51 years old. He could have three decades in politics, or if you know he wants to follow the Diane Feinstein, you know, he could have he got four <laughs> decades in politics. He could be around years for, young. for yeah, he could be around forever. Um, he clearly is positioning himself at the moment to possibly run for office again. So I'm just not sure what the upside for him is in passing this legislation when, as I as I pointed out, I, I think a lot of it is pretty de minimis. You know, there is a little petty vindictiveness, but it doesn't really change the political dynamic. Republicans uh, have a tremendous check already because of their majorities in the legislature. Uh, I suppose the one substantive thing is that you keep the work requirement for Medicaid recipients, but I'm not sure that that's the mountain you want to die on. No. And I don't think they fully grasp the long-term damage this will cause. And one more point, the Scott Walker, I'm not just going to call him Scott, the governor, uh, went on a tweet storm over the weekend, I think in response to some of the people saying this was going to tarnish his legacy. And there's a very prominent businessman here in Milwaukee who's saying the same thing, like, don't do this. And, and it, was, it was a number of tweets, maybe 20 or more tweets, I don't know. Where he went through his his various accomplishments and things that he did, you know, turning around the state, reforming the state. And it's a very impressive list, which really reinforces the point, you know, Scott, if you don't if you want to talk about that, don't step on your own message by signing this stuff in the lame duck. Because for the next several months or years, 
nobody's going to want to talk about this record. They're going to want to talk about this legislation. And so it, you know, may give the Republicans in the legislature some short-term advantages, very small on the edges. But what does it do for you, Scott Walker, going forward? Is there anything in there that is going to make you more viable or help you move on to the next stage of your career? So, but again, I, I, I'm, you know, assuming that, that the reason I'm bringing it up is that I actually think that I, I wish there were more friends of Scott Walker saying, we're giving you the advice, this advice, not because we're your opponents, but because we are, in fact, your friends. But I'm not sure he's hearing that. No, he should. He, and, and everyone should go out and read your piece at The Atlantic because mm. it's fantastic. And if Republicans were really concerned about limiting the power of the executive, they would have done it on day one, not oh, in exactly. the 11th hour. But, yeah. you know, as you point out, you know, that this this and, and I think I, I made this last time we spoke about it on the podcast, the pendulum swings further and further. Just like Harry Reid and you know judicial nominees and whatnot, and uh, you know you, you start setting these precedents, and you have to be willing to accept what's going to happen because when you set this bad precedent, you got to be prepared for that and worse to happen to you, and it may very well be it's it's not great. Yeah, that's the problem, as I say. But you know, with the an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, is the whole world ends up blind and toothless. It's like the NHL. It is pretty much. <laughs> Gentlemen, thank you so much for joining me. I appreciate it very much. And thank you for listening to the Daily Standard Podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. We will be back tomorrow. We'll do this all over again.